0: So find 1 Corinthians 10 in your Bible, and we're going to read verses 14 to 22. 1 Corinthians ten fourteen to 22. Let's go ahead and stand and uh, read it together. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless? A sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing... Sacrifice to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Let's pray. Father, we uh, pray this evening that you would help us as we uh, look at this passage of Scripture, as we consider the truth that's uh, given there. Lord, we uh, we pray as we worship that... Um, our hearts would be set on you and that uh, we would be open and receptive to all that you have for us tonight. Lord, we want to uh, be people who are pleasing to you. And Lord, we want to be people that make a difference in our world. So Lord, we ask you to help us tonight to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be built up in the faith so that we might serve you faithfully. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the message tonight is the question, Do You Worship Demons? And most of you are probably thinking, what kind of question is that? Of course I don't worship demons. Are you sure? You might be surprised. In this passage, Paul tells the Corinthians that idolatry is actually demon worship, According to God's perspective. So the question that we must answer is, are we guilty of idolatry? And that is what this passage deals with. Now, we read it a few minutes ago, but we need to remember the context. Remember, first of all, that Paul is answering a series of questions from these Corinthian believers. He's also dealing with a number of problems connected to this particular church. And the main problem in the Corinthian church was the problem of compromise and immaturity. They're divided. They had allowed some blatant sin in the church. They were taking each other to court. They were abusing a number of things, including public worship and spiritual gifts. And in the section we are in now, they are abusing their Christian liberty. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 deal with the issue of limiting our liberty for the sake of weaker brothers. And the basic premise is that we determine not to do anything that will cause a weaker brother to stumble. And as Paul has made clear, there are some things that are unquestionable, that are clearly condemned in Scripture. And of course, Christians have no liberty in regard to those things. We are to obey the clear instructions of the Lord. But on the other hand, there are also some things that we might call gray areas in which we need to follow some guiding principles. And one of those key principles is the principle of giving up to gain. Part of our spiritual maturity is that of knowing when it is best to give up our personal liberties to gain something more valuable. Now, we read through this entire text, and what Paul is saying in essence is, it is not Inherently wrong to eat meat that has been offered to idols, but it is wrong to participate in idolatry. The Corinthians were free to attend pagan functions, but not to participate in false worship. So look again with me at verses 14 and 15. He says this, Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Notice that Paul first reminds his brothers and sisters in Christ of his love for them. This is always Paul's practice anytime he needed to confront a fellow believer. And of course, we can learn from this because this is always a good way to approach any kind of confrontation, start with a positive affirmation. And because these are genuine believers here, along with their salvation, they have received spiritual discernment. And so Paul speaks to them as those who are wise. Now that should not be taken as some sort of sarcasm, but as A sincere affirmation of them. And before he goes into the details and factors involved in their idolatry, he gives them the basic command flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Idolatry is never to be flirted with, it is always to be fled from completely. And because idolatry is worshiping something other than the true God in the proper way, it is the most serious and contaminating of all sins. Someone has said, well, all sins are the same to God, and that would be true in one sense, but false in another. It is true that all sin is disobedience to God, and all sin separates us from fellowship with him. And all sin contributes to the price our Lord had to pay on the cross. But some sins are more serious than others because they carry greater consequences and damage than others do. And the point here is that idolatry is at the top of the list in regard to the worst sins. It is not accidental or incidental that the first two of the Ten Commandments are prohibitions that have to do with idolatry. If we do not have the right view of God, then nothing else will be in the right perspective. And since the fall... Men have wanted to make God in their own image and according to their own liking. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Romans chapter 1. Here's how Paul put it in Romans one, twenty-one to 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile... In their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. This is talking about idolatry. Now, as I'm sure you know, idolatry can take many different forms. It includes much more than merely bowing down to some sort of statue or burning incense to a physical image of some kind. Idolatry is having any false god, any object, idea, philosophy, Habit, occupation, sport, anything that holds one's primary loyalty is idolatry. Anything that decreases a person's trust and devotion to the one true God is idolatry. One definition that I read uh, says, Idolatry is trusting people, possessions, or positions to do for me what only God can do. And you see, the truth of the matter is everyone worships, including atheists. An atheist may worship himself or he may worship some false theory of thought, but anyone who rejects the true God is in essence worshiping a false God. And as Christians, we understand that there is no other God but the God of the Bible. And we know that he is a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of another. In Isaiah 48:11, God says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Exodus thirty-four fourteen says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. And many places in Scripture we see how God judges idolatry severely. This is a very serious thing. In fact, here we see that God puts it On the very same plane as worshiping demons. And of course, it's helpful in a sermon on idolatry to think through the various forms that idolatry can take. The first one is no doubt the most obvious, which is worshiping an image. Worshiping an image. You know, I just read an article this week about the tremendous revival that is taking place on the island nation of Trinidad. And part of what is happening is that there are hundreds of Hindu priests that are becoming Christians. And when they do, the first thing they do is they bring all their false images and destroy them. That's genuine revival that's going on. And, of course, we know Wayne Balkin is over there. But, of course, the worship of images is clearly forbidden in Scripture. And over and over again in the Old Testament, we're told where Israel was commanded to tear down the altars of false gods and to burn their graven images with fire. For example, numbers 3352 says then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places in Deuteronomy 12:3 they were told then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places over and over and over again we see this kind of thing in the old testament and of course when israel constructed the molten calf in the wilderness they said they were worshiping yahweh but the truth of the matter is they were worshiping a false god of their own making. And by the way, this, this kind of image does not have to be some sort of statue of a person that you might bow down to or an animal or something. doesn't necessarily have to be that. It might be something you wear around your neck. It might be a St. Christopher or a lucky charm of some kind. And the worship of any kind of image, for any reason, is idolatry. And folks, if you're trusting in that thing around your neck to keep you safe, then you have turned from the true God to a false God. And think about this. Only Jesus Christ is to be worshipped, not images of him, not likenesses of him. And those statues of Christ usually still on the cross do not represent him no matter what anyone may claim. The Bible says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And by the way, if you want to know where this kind of idolatry leads, Just look to the Hindus. They have 330 million gods. That is eight gods for every Hindu family. The Hindu religion teaches the sanctity of animal life. And so while they themselves usually live in abject poverty, the animals among them are maintained in idleness and peace. India's 450 million Hindus have roughly 75 million cows to worship. And not only that, but they allow monkeys, rats, and other pests to destroy their crops without doing anything to them because they, in essence, worship those animals. And another thing to note about the worship of images is that there has been a lot of deception connected with this practice. A traveler traveler to Pompeii, for example, will be shown the temple of Isis, a statue of supposed divinity through whose open lips the credulous worshipers of long ago believed They received trustworthy answers to their petitions. And yet, now, running alongside the ruined statue, you can also see the secret staircase by which the the fraudulent priest, priest reached the back of the statue. And there you can find the concealed pipe through which he murmured, The response of the oracle. And throughout history, there have been claims of statues that supposedly cried. Or images that spoke or a number of other bogus claims. But the word of God says idols are nothing. They're nothing. Turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, look with me at verses 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Idols are nothing. But not all idols are images. They're not all statues. There are also other forms of idolatry, such as libeling the character of God. That's another form of idolatry. Now, this form of idolatry is committed anytime we believe something about God that is different from what he really is. For example, how many have the concept of God as an old man sitting in a rocking chair that would never hurt a flea? And, of course, that is completely contrary to the teaching of Scripture. But that kind of idolatry is common. But it is totally unacceptable. Someone once said, Idolatry does not begin with the sculptor's hammer. It begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. It begins with a concept. And if that concept is not guided by the true revelation of God in Scripture, it is just as bad as worshipping statues, or as Paul says in this passage, worshipping demons. For example, this would be the case if we begin to believe that God is only a God of love. If we deny or neglect to acknowledge that he is also totally just and holy, then we have, in essence, fallen into idolatry. If someone begins to think that Jesus was only a great teacher and that he is not the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity and the one and only Savior of the world, then he has fallen into idolatry. This is libeling the character and nature of God. Oh, but we need to go just a little deeper than that. We're also guilty of libeling the character of God when we do not trust him, when we doubt that he is able or that he is willing to meet every need that we have. In essence, we libel the character of God when we say in our hearts, I question whether your word is reliable, whether your promises are true, whether your power is sufficient, and whether your love is unlimited. There's a third form of idolatry, and that is dependence on things. Dependence on things. Materialism can be a form of idolatry. Material gods may be worshipped even without the conscious thought that they are deities. Turn with me for a moment to Job 31, Job 31, and look with me at verses 24 through 28. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great, because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon going in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have, notice, denied God above. That describes a man who refuses the inclination to worship his material wealth. If you worship what you possess, if you center your life on yourself, on your possessions, or even on your needs, you have, in essence, denied God. You have denied God above. Therefore, it is idolatry. But fourthly, there is worshiping the true God in the wrong way. Worshiping the true God, but in the wrong way. Anytime we adopt worldly practices in the church, we set up idols that detract from true worship. Worshiping God in the wrong way is unacceptable Worship. Now, this might include such things as the use of icons or the use of contemporary media or other elements that take away from the exaltation of God and focus attention on men instead. Now, I'm not going to flesh that one out this evening, and you can trust the Holy Spirit to help you apply that. And we could also talk about other things, such as the worship of angels or worshiping people. But the bottom line is that idolatry includes giving the supreme loyalty of our hearts to anyone other than the true God of the Bible. This could include such things as hobbies, sports, our families, organizations our job, the pursuit of pleasures, and a number of other things. Idolatry in any form is an offense to God and is harmful to both believers and unbelievers. And since no good can ever come from idolatry, our first response should always be to flee. Flee from idolatry. Now, in verses 16 to 22, Paul gives us three reasons for fleeing from idolatry. He says, it is deceitful, it is demonic, and it is dangerous. So that's the outline for the rest of the message. We begin with, it is deceitful. Look with me at verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? You say, what is this all about? Well, the cup of thanksgiving was the third cup of the four in the Passover meal. And of course, this was the cup that Jesus reinterpreted to represent his blood that was shed on Calvary. Matthew 26:27 and 28 says and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, "Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many." For the forgiveness of sins. For Christians, this is the cup of blessing because it represents the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. And each time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we give thanks to God for his indescribable gift. The way this is worded, Paul is assuming the regular participation of the believers in the Lord's Supper. But notice his emphasis here. He says that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are participating in his blood and in his body. This is why it is often referred to as communion. Now, I personally don't like to use that term, communion, because the Catholic Church has so distorted the meaning of it. But there is an element in which we are one with Christ to such a degree that we spiritually share in his blood and in his body. The word for sharing there in the New American Standard is the familiar Greek word koinonia. We usually translate it fellowship, but it can also mean participation with, or to have partnership in. When we properly share in the Lord's Supper, we are spiritually participating in fellowship with other believers and with Christ. It is much more than just a ceremony. It is more than just a symbol. It is a celebration of a common spiritual experience. MacArthur points to this illustration. He says the picture of someone we love is not the same as that person. It only represents the person. But the feelings of love, care, desire to be with them, and of remembering experiences we have had with them are totally real. We have an experience of real fellowship and kinship with that person person whenever we see the picture, and that's the same as it is with the sharing of the Lord's Supper together. In it, we remember the true historical facts about Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf, and spiritually, we join together with all believers in this common experience of salvation in him. Now, in this passage, Jesus' blood and his body are used as metonyms. A metonym is a figure of speech in which the name of one thing is used to represent another thing of which it is a part or with which it is associated. For example, if you say... I have been reading Spurgeon, you don't mean you have read everything Spurgeon wrote, or at least probably not. What you mean is you've read a portion of what Spurgeon wrote. In other words, the name of the author is used to represent the works that he has written. And in the same way, in the New Testament, the concept of blood is often used to represent all of Christ's atoning work. Now, certainly, that includes his sacrificial death on the cross. But please understand, there was nothing about his actual physical blood that was able to remove our sin. It was his death that is represented by his blood that paid the penalty for our sin. If he had just bled and not died, that would not have been sufficient. He had to die. And in the same way, the bread, which represents his body, is used to refer to his life. If he had not lived a sinless life, he never could have died in our place. Now, of course, the bread and the wine are not transubstantiated. They're not turned into the actual body and blood of Christ in some mystical way, as the Catholics believe. They're not consubstantiated. They don't include the actual body and blood of Christ existing. Alongside the elements, as the Lutherans believe, the elements are symbols only. But understand when believers partake of the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit uses those symbols as sensitizers to kindle in our hearts an awareness and remembrance of our Lord's sacrifice on our behalf. And not only that, but the symbol of Christ's body represents our unity in him. Notice how he puts it here in verse 17. Since there is one bread, we are many. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. All believers stand on the same level ground at the foot of the cross. We all stand as forgiven sinners redeemed by Christ. We're all one body in him. And to illustrate this oneness, he points to the Old Testament and the oneness of Israel. Look at verse 18. He says, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, sharers in the altar? They all have the altar in common. So where does the deception come in here? Well, it comes in this way. To sacrifice to an idol was to identify with that which was, in essence, nothing. It is the exact opposite of sharing in the real salvation that we have in Christ. It is deceptive in nature because it implies There is something when there is nothing. And unlike participating in the spiritual realities of Christ's atoning work, worshiping an idol is devoid of any true meaning. There's a second important reason why we should flee idolatry, and that is it is demonic. It's demonic. Look at verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Idols are nothing. When we're involved in idolatry, the thing sacrificed to has no power at all spiritually. In fact, it has no power of any kind. Idols have no ability to accomplish anything at all. Oh, but there's one thing that we can say about idols, and that's this. The spiritual force behind them, is demonic. It's demonic. In fact, Paul says that in actuality, those who worship them are in fact worshiping demons. Of course, this was typical of Gentile paganism. In the Greek and Roman pantheism, the people believed that idols actually represented a real God. This was Satan's deception to lead them to spiritual blindness and ultimate destruction. The demons were Satan's emissaries to carry out this deception. So what we as Christians would say is that there is never a real God behind an idol, but there is a spiritual force. And that spiritual force is demonic if a statue appears to be crying it's not divinity but evil that is causing it. MacArthur writes demons are not unlimited in power, but they have power to perform enough wonders and to make enough predictions come true to keep superstitious worshipers, deceived and loyal. And Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 2 that in the future, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It's going to be great future deception, but it's already involved in idolatry. Verse 11 says, And for this reason God will send them a deluding influence so they might believe what is false. That's the nature of idolatry. The Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of this world, this system of deceptive evil and that he rules with the aid of his demons. And so so to participate in the corrupt things of the world, especially the pagan idolatry of corrupt worship, is to participate in demons. It is to become a sharer in demons. Paul said, listen, a Christian cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons at the same time. Paul says you can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's completely inconsistent and hypocritical. Jesus, of course, made it clear you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one and hate the other or vice versa. And there, of course, he was talking about trying to love God And money at the same time. But the principle is the same. It is impossible to worship the true God and worship demons at the same time. Well, there's one last reason that Paul gives here as to why we must flee idolatry. And that is because it is dangerous. It is dangerous. Look with me at verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord? To jealousy. We're not stronger than He, are we? Why is it dangerous? Because it provokes the Lord to jealousy. He is all powerful and we are not. Therefore, we do not want to provoke Him to anger against us. Now, I used jealousy and anger as synonyms there because the bible makes that connection in Deuteronomy 32:21 we read God speaking they have made me jealous with what is not god they have provoked me to anger with their idols here jealousy and anger are equivalent the lord deals strongly with idolatry because nothing is more offensive to him than that. It is the most detestable form of unbelief that there is. This is, of course, why the northern kingdom fell and eventually why the southern kingdom was led into captivity in Babylon. Idolatry is so dangerous. If left unchecked, It will bring the judgment and wrath of God. And of course, Paul's question, we are not stronger than he, are we, is rhetorical. Surely the idolater does not really believe he is more powerful than God. That, Paul says, is insanity. God will not allow idolatry. Among the lost to go unpunished, and even those who are his children will incur his chastisement for it if believers persist in participating in any form of idolatry, as some of the Corinthian believers were doing they could they should expect to pay a great price. But well, what must we conclude first that idolatry is one of the most detestable things in God's sight. And anytime we put someone or something in the place of the true God, we are guilty of it. And in essence, we are worshiping demons. And so let me ask the question again. Do you worship demons? We must... Ask ourselves that question and answer honestly. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this text tonight, that we would not be guilty of any form of idolatry. But, Lord, help us to flee from idolatry and help us to guard our hearts and help us to always put you first and foremost in everything. So Lord, we pray this week that we will live for you and we would give you our highest priority in life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.